thing about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife is feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's insightful intriguing you belong it's about all of us always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife Hello again and a very happy Sunday to you all. I'm back today with another in our Andaman and Nicobar series with a conversation featuring Pankaj Sekhsarya, a professor at IIT Bombay. His main areas of research lie at the intersection of environment, science, society and technology and he is incredibly driven when it comes to issues of the environment and wildlife conservation across the country. He is also an incredible and prolific writer and storyteller and you can find his words tucked away in mainstream journalism, academic articles, novels, essays and more. Today, he joins me to talk about where his deep connection with the Andaman and Nicobar Islands comes from and we dissect all that is currently unfolding in terms of infrastructural development on Great Nicobar Island. What does it mean for the future of the island's people and its biodiversity? Let's jump right in. Hi Pankaj, it's really lovely to have you here on the thing about wildlife. I'm very excited to talk about a lot of different things that are happening on ground in the islands, but even more excited to know more about you because we see a lot of the work you put out which is often very well researched and very serious and bringing us the facts we all need to know, but we really don't know much about you and what drives you. So hopefully we learn a bit about that. So welcome to the podcast Pankaj. Hi thanks thanks a lot thanks for having me here thanks for doing this okay let's start off right at the beginning you're someone who has a background in what seems like completely unrelated fields you've you studied things like engineering and you've gone through a nanotechnology training and things like this and however right now you're deeply tuned into the on ground happenings in different protected areas across the country what's happening with indigenous communities in different corners of india So how did this happen how where did this connect with nature develop and just connect these dots for us So i mean uh, it's um it kind of goes back to school and early college days uh, so i grew up in pune outside in in, a, in in the suburbs of pune and i wasn't really very interested in some of these things till uh, well not till very late but say till i passed out from school uh, my younger brother also does a lot of work in wildlife he was also a very keen wildlife or birder and all and uh, i do remember i used to make fun of him as an elder brother and i got interested eventually so uh, it was somebody at iit bombay who was a student at iit bombay uh, then i'm talking of uh, almost now 35 40 years ago uh, who used to come regularly to where we used to stay and he was related to one of our very close friends and neighbors and he was a very keen birder and a very keen wildlife or he was also if i remember right at some point the secretary of the wildlife club in iit bombay so he kind of uh, that's my first memory of getting interested he would uh, take us out birding uh, and I, i remember the ashiprinia or what was the what was it called earlier i forget uh, the ashiran wobbler 
was the first uh, bird that I, I remember seeing. And that, that's my kind of abiding memory of a journey into this uh, with this friend. And of course, uh, with Piyush and my brother also being along. Uh, so very quickly at that point, I, I got interested in, in birding and things like that. And then I think a, uh, a lot of these things are not really you know, in our control. I mean, these are also influences that come our way, a lot of serendipity, a lot of... Uh, I mean, best way is, is just not in your control or does not work in the way that we think it works. Uh, so I got interested. I started doing birding and stuff like that, trekking a little bit. But very soon, and I'm, I'm talking of, say, in a couple of years since I started this, uh, including this friend from IIT Bombay, we started to get involved in, the, in, in trying to understand the larger environmental and developmental issues. So if... Uh, in some senses, again, not because it was me, but because of influences and people around, um, these things kind of came into the picture very quickly. And the two things that happened when I was in junior college, if I remember right, class 11 or class 12, uh, there was, one was the Narmada Bachao Andolan was quite active at that point of time. And Pune used to be a very important and a big support group or a, a support kind of mechanism. So I uh, and my younger brother and of us started to kind of as college students uh, try and understand what was going on and also help them joining an occasional you know march in the city or raise some small funding and all that so engaging with those conversations listening to what was being said what was being demanded what were the concerns raised uh, was quite uh, influential and i'm thinking for somebody who's just out of school that's also a, a, a time when you are uh, bound to be influenced so that was one very important thing when I look back. And the other was more of kind of a physical experience was, uh, there was this very uh, exciting Save Western Hearts March that happened in the late 80s uh, when I was, I think, just class 11. So there was this uh, Paschim Ghat Bachao Morcha and Paschim Ghat uh, uh, Bachao Yatra, uh, which, uh, which I, I'm not sure if you read about it or heard about it, but it was quite exciting for some of us at that point of time. So from what I remember, there was this group of very prominent activists, ecologists, anthropologists, journalists, researchers, who set out to get a first-hand account and understanding of the status of the Western Ghats, social, ecological, you know, that kind of stuff. So they did a 100-day yatra, 100-day march, which started at the two extremes of the Western Ghats, and it culminated in Goa, where they met for a conference. And uh, I had an opportunity of joining that march for about eight or 10 days. Uh, when uh, I was just out of school. So luckily my college principal also allowed me at that point of time. So, uh, and we, we, I was in, in that, I joined the march uh, in the area that at the backwaters of the Koina Dam. And that experience, it was nothing that was very emotionally you know, traumatic or very, very influential in that sense, but it had a, it did have a big influence. So I, I was seeing these people who are, you know, uh, Doing this research, I remember Madhav Gadgil was there. There was Kailash Malhotra, Jagdish Godbule, which even today are very prominent names. I mean, Jagdish Godbule is no more, but uh, people very reputed, very uh, credible people. And it was very interesting to just be around them, see what they were doing. And then uh, that was on the one hand. And the other was to see the landscape. So we were in the landscape, that part, which was submerged in the backwaters of the Koina Dam. And uh, some of those things kind of, came across of what displacement went, uh, meant and uh, 
uh, what were the larger impacts and things like that. So these two, uh, in very concrete terms, were very uh, big influences. And I became a very keen birder also at that point of time. So I used to really step out birding quite a lot in the area that we were uh, living. So that was the kind of initiation. And very soon, and uh, even before I went into college, I realized that I want to do work in the field of the environment. And it would be a combination of wildlife, environmental issues, and things like that. And simultaneously around that time, I also developed an interest and some capacity in writing. And uh, the, the very interesting thing, which now so sounds kind of really, in today's world, sounds very uh, improbable, is that it all started through letter writing. So as a, uh, again, early college, late, late junior college kind of times, uh, I think I was trying to find out what I wanted to do and I didn't have many friends and oh, that's what I remember. But I had these two or three friends or four friends to whom uh, I wrote long letters and regular letters. And I don't know what, what I wrote, but somewhere I think I've kept those letters, at least those I re received from them. So we used to exchange very, very long letters, handwritten letters that would go into 15, 20 pages uh, and in a constant exchange. And some of these, or two of them said, I remember that, you know, we really enjoy reading our letters because uh, for, for whatever reason. And that was uh, kind of a very interesting moment for me. I said, okay, so maybe I can write well. And the idea of being a writer was not really there, but uh, I, I realized at that point of time that communication could be something. And I still remember... Again, in, in those early days, I remember writing a letter to a local newspaper, uh, which does not exist anymore. And they published that little letter. It was about, a, uh, it was, I think it was about burning wood on holy. And I said, we have to find a solution or one of these kind of religious environmental issues. Little letter of 10, 15 lines. And uh, when it was published, it was such an achievement. I was like, I thought, my God, I've done such a big job. And I went around the neighborhood showing it and, you know, yeah, the older generation, Vava, you know, very good and all that. So that was also also very nice. So, uh, so this combination of wanting to do environment and communication, uh, luckily for me, uh, kind of came together as an idea quite early. Then I went into engineering partly because uh, it just was one of the things that one did, and not that I was really forced into it, but I ended up doing that. But I was never really either good or very keen, and. By the time I kind of finished my engineering, I was very clear that uh, it would be actually an intersection of environment and communication. So I did my master's in MassCom from Jamia. And uh, so a lot of my work in those six, seven years was my, my main interest were wildlife, environment and stuff like that. And then this communication course happened. And I got a chance to actually work on a wildlife film in Kaziranga after that uh, as my first uh, job. And then, uh, so in the in the interim, after I finished my engineering, uh, actually I had a, a one year, like a forced gap year at that point of time, because I hadn't cleared my engineer. So I had kind of nothing to do. And I had this friend who had introduced me to birding. Uh, he was in Port Blair. He was, uh, he, he was in the Navy at that point of time, and he had a Port Blair posting. And he said, if you have nothing to do and you're free, why don't you come over? So between my engineering and my master's in that one year or six months, I had this chance to go to the island and I spent some two months at a complete loose end over there. And, you know, so I'm talking of the mid 90s, uh, 95 maybe. So that's really long ago now. So I had uh, 
nothing to do and i was generally roaming around and you know i went up and down the uh, the length of the islands right from diglipur down to great nick uh, and got to know the place saw the place and uh, it is absolutely as you would know it's a fascinating is a fascinating place for, for multiple reasons and i was i was kind of smitten if i if i might uh, use that word and also there was this uh, tendency or interest in doing something right and doing something good so there was that activity kind of thing and one could see that there were issues and at that point my friend also introduced me to samir acharya of uh, the society for andaman and ecobar ecology uh, who again as you know you know passed away about a year and a half ago maybe two years ago now so he for a long time has been and was even then a prominent voice you know civil society or a public voice for issues of the environment for eth- for ethical issues for uh, larger transparency for the tribal rights and things like that and i met him and i was influenced also influenced by him got friendly with him so when i came back from the islands after my first trip i was very keen on going back and uh, uh, but then i moved to delhi for my masters and then i was in delhi for two two and a half three years and in those uh, two and a half years two and a half three years that's when i got associated with kalpavriksh so kalpavriksh used to be based in delhi at that point of time and kalpavriksh had already done some work in the andaman islands so some of the members like uh, pratibha pande who's also unfortunately no more ashish sunita sunita rao ashish kothari uh and others as well they, they had done some projects and they had some understanding and uh, samir knew this group for the work that they did so he kind of connected me to them and then i started working with kalpavriksh on some andaman matters and when i finished my masters then i was very keen on going back so through kalpavriksh we wrote up a project uh, which the bnhs funded at that point of time i think this was uh, 97 or 98 for 50000 rupees and then i went back after my masters and i spent 6 months at a stretch again just going up and down looking at some of the environmental issues so uh, that is where actually the substantial engagement started to happen i asked you to connect the dots and you've been doing that so beautifully and it's really fun to hear some of those more formative experiences and i think yeah, it's yeah. amazing how no matter how many people i talk to on the podcast this common thread of when you're younger having one or two key experiences as a child yeah. can really catapult you into a lifelong interest and it's amazing to hear that happened for you as well and especially to know that you were right there in the middle and crux of what was happening with the narmada bachao andolan and the pashchim ghat bachao morcha i think it's uh, those experiences had to have been really life changing even if they were short uh, bits of association that you had um and uh, i also didn't yeah and i also didn't know that you had uh visited the length and breadth of the andaman and nicobar islands so early on even before you uh, really launched your uh, professional career you know so very interesting to hear about some of those formative times uh, and i'm definitely going to ask you to tell me a lot more about 
the time that you spent in the islands, those initial two months and then the six months with the VNHS founding. But um, I also wanted to ask you a little bit before that, that you've also over time developed a keen interest in policy. And you also seem to have a good grasp on certain legal matters and legal systems in the country and how these things work in terms of protected areas, in terms of, uh, you know, monitoring and maintaining different law and policy in the country from uh, the Wildlife Protection Act to the Forest Rights Act and other things involved. So how did you, where did you learn the ins and outs of the legal systems and how did that interest also come in? So actually, to be honest, I'm not so, I don't have such a, uh, you know, deep and uh, elaborate understanding of uh, some of these things. I mean, there are, of course, uh, uh, there's a lot, I, I do know something, but it, it's not anywhere uh, near what a lot of other people know. And as a matter of fact, in recent years, uh, actually my interest and my understanding has also further come down because my areas of interest and work have actually broadened uh, into other, other domains, both in environment and outside of the environment, broadly speaking. But, uh, so I think the, whatever little I know and what I learned was kind of uh, compulsion of uh, of, of the kind of work that we wanted to do or to, to, or to intervene. So the Kalpavriksh, so the other thing one I, I must say is that I've now been working with Kalpavriksh almost 30 years now and or, or around that much. And uh, it is uh, extremely important and formative and influential because of the people there, because of a certain idea of what development and environment and conservation means. So when we are at that intersection and you you want to uh, you feel the compulsion to intervene to so then you have to pick up those things you cannot not know them so it's it's nothing really i would say extraordinary in that sense so if for instance based on the andaman work uh, which eventually happened when i went for the bnhs project we the six months uh, i did some traveling some digging out and we we pulled out some two or three very interesting pieces of problematic information, which I've also written about extensively, including, for example, forestry in Little Andaman, uh, which was, we, we could show that in many ways it was how it was illegal or it was not, not right. That's what we took to court in 98. Now, if you go to the court, then um, even if you're not the lawyer arguing, there are certain things that you would need to know and you would need to uh, understand and kind of take it forward in that sense. So it was the compulsions of that kind of thing also that contributed. And uh, the other thing parallelly was that then when I started working with Kalpavriksh, uh, like all of us do, we work in some certain areas. So I ended up working a little bit on this communication part. I, we, the, the PA update was already there, it just started there. So I've been doing the PA update since then. Uh, and if you're interested in conservation and those issues, then one ends up looking at some of the relevant laws and policies, the Wildlife Act, um, the National Forest Policy, Indian Forest Act, eventually the Forest Rights Act. So it is it is one of those things that kind of happen and many things also get left out. And the, the other thing which perhaps has happened is that, and when I look back, I realize that um, partly because of the way I work and partly of my, my interests and partly also that things happened that the way they did. I've ended up sticking to two or three broad areas or, or sorry, two or three specific areas of work over the last almost three decades of my work. Lots of other things have happened, but those two threads, as it were, uh, 
I've always held on to. So one is the work in the Andamans and the other is the work of the protected area update. So it is a little bit now that I am, you know, teaching in an institute. So that's what I tell students also is that we, of course, want to do many things, but it seems very valuable to stick to something that you can hold on to. And 25 years later, you can look back and say, I'm still doing that. Because that is how you build that longitudinal engagement uh, builds up, you know, in the very cliched manner, the brick by brick understanding the, the, the entire structure of your own understanding, your credibility, your, uh, your insights come because of that. I mean, if I'm to parachute into any place today, I can bring value, but there are not many people in any field who will stick to something. Uh, of course, there are many people who are doing that. And it cannot happen unless you continue with that. So where PAs are concerned, actually, I realize I'm not so much out in the field as I would like to be, but because I'm looking at PAs from a particular lens, you know, month on month, week on week for the PA update, I'm, I can see certain things just on account of the fact that I'm engaging with them all the time. So I think a constant engagement uh, broadens and widens your uh, understanding of that thing. And that's the only way it can happen because time is an important factor over there. So those understandings, to the extent that they have been, have kind of been driven by those uh, continued engagements with those particular things. So that's what I would say. It's not, and it's not very extraordinary elaborate in that sense. Uh, much more can be done. And sometimes I do miss that as a matter of fact. Right. Now, I think it's also very beneficial to hear this coming from someone like you to say that there are things you just have to learn on the ground. And sometimes it's just part and parcel of what needs to be done. It may not be a nascent interest, but it, it's just things that you iteratively learn about and pick up and is in the long term good to know. Um, and I think maybe anyone listening who's even maybe starting out in their field, you know, just it's a good thing to keep in mind to try and absorb these bits as we go along and uh, pull out those red flags and understand why they're red flags in different systems. You, you also mentioned the PA update and for those listening who don't know what that is, it's the protected area update, which uh, Pankaj has been managing for so long, like he said, and definitely do check it out if you uh, haven't already. It, it's such a comprehensive, uh, such a wealth of work. And uh, I think it's some, it's very important. And I think it, like, I think recently, if I'm not wrong, you also put out a compilation of several years of updates. Is that right, Pankaj? We actually done three books based on that, which, you know, would be useful for somebody who's doing. So there's one book, which is uh, based on the Northeast. So all the protected areas of the states of the Northeast. And three, four years ago, I did one more, which is a collected thing from Maharashtra. So all the news in Maharashtra from Maharashtra PA that has appeared in the newsletter for the last, uh, whatever, 25 years have come together. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you know, it is, uh, it, it is not, it does not cover the complete universe of news, but uh, it, it is a very indicative, it gives an indicative sense of what's happening. Okay. So since we've been doing it for 25, 28 years, now, so for example, in the Maharashtra book, what we did was, uh, we, we of course put them, put the news of every single PA chronologically, uh, one after the other. So we picked out, say, Sanjay Gandhi National Park from 1996, and we take all the, inf all the news items from 96 to 2015. And, you know, you, even if you just cut and paste them one after the other, and you read that narrative, you can almost see a story of Sanjay Gandhi National Park mm -hmm. uh, or, or, uh, or Tadoba or uh, Kaziranga which uh, is in some senses the contemporary account, the contemporary history of this place. 
it is broken it is not a complete narrative but it helps to uh, give you a sense of what happened it gives you the dots that you can then connect depending on what you are looking for and uh, we did some analysis and uh, you can actually see certain trends you can see that in certain periods of time if you break it up say into if you break up the 25 years into 5 year slots you can see that in certain areas uh, or certain sanjigan national park for instance there was a there was a set of issues that were dominant in this period of time and as that period changes the focus the interest the issues change uh and it, it is reflected it is refracted through the news media because what the pr did is picks out what the news media is putting out so you get a very interesting uh media mediated story of uh, you know protected areas just by the by, by the fact that you put all that information together you can start to see trends and but it is important that we do that because otherwise you know we are just getting snapshots from a period or or perspective so that is the kind of uh, work that just doing it for 10 20 years 30 years has kind of allowed and then of course the latest one was a book that is uh, even even more subjective because it it was a compilation of the edits of this newsletter and uh, you can see very interesting uh, trends emerge and what are the key issues where pas are concerned so i feel that in conservation we carry certain ideas of what the main issues are and if you generally do a survey you will get some three or four answers okay these are the main important issues in conservation but when you do a slightly more in depth kind of analysis and you know, of the kind that we did or we end up doing there are many very interesting counterintuitive you know insights that also come up as to what might be an issue what might be of concern or what should be of concern which gets which goes completely under the radar or what might be very interesting areas of research that uh, that would be very fulfilling as areas of research but also having conservation implications uh, so that that is something that uh, often is very very interesting when you do something on a longitudinal basis of a particular kind that is not otherwise uh, done for whatever reason yeah yeah well i think that's also such a uh, useful piece of archival information in the years to come because like Absolutely. you said it's just nicely compiled and even if it's not a whole story even if there are some gaps and there are other things happening i think it's a really good indicator like you said and uh, definitely whoever hasn't checked it out you know really should especially if you're interested in some of those key locations um yeah i'm actually going to pull you back now into the andaman islands and uh, ask you to tell us a little bit more about your travels there maybe you know even the initial few two months or even the work that you did with bnhs where you really started to look at things more systematically maybe with a little more focused lens but tell us about those early days of travel what was it like as somebody from the mainland who grew up in pune who's been in metros like delhi uh, to go to the islands for the first time and experience life there what was that like so uh, i mean it was it was good fun as you know somebody who's just kind of out of college and uh, so there was also this like lovely opportunity of going up and down traveling both in the first time and the second time and uh, I, i may have even written some diary notes somewhere which i should kind of pull out i don't remember now i i did i think i did write a set of diaries i'll have to check where they are but uh, so the so among the other things for instance and manish i think you've already spoken to manish or or you will be speaking to him there was this uh, thing in the in the late 90s when 
we were both together. I mean, he, he also came to the islands at roughly the same time at, that I went. So our journeys in the islands began in very different ways, but at the same time there. And the work that Manish has done in the islands is also so amazing. But it was in our first trip there where we were in this at this point of time and point and a place, particular place where uh, this whole coming out from the forest by the Jaravas actually happened in very large numbers. So some of the people who know the Andaman story or are interested know that the story of the Jaravas as it were. And I did write about that. That was my first big kind of journalism story in 1998 for Frontline, uh, which was, uh, I was very lucky. Frontline just gave me this opportunity to write that story. But it, uh, looking back, it, it, is, it, it is said to be the first big event when uh, these guys came out from the forest and uh, Manish and me were there. We happened to be on that jetty at that point of time and we saw these large number of Jaravas and this whole interaction. I wrote about it and then actually uh, in, in the novel that I did, The Last Wave, uh, there is an entire episode uh, which actually fictionalizes uh, what happened in that first coming out of the Jaravas in that sense. It's very large numbers. And if I remember right, and if I articulate it correctly, it was in large numbers and uh, without weapons as it was. So it was a very different kind of interaction that was happening or that's how I understood it. Um, so that was there. I, I went down to Great Nate, had the chance of seeing uh, Megapod, of seeing uh, the leatherback nesting. Uh, so uh, of course, and, and the regular things, I mean, uh, the mud volcanoes, this, that and the other. and also had some great time with uh, with Annette, with Harry Andrews. So he was there at that point of time. And I kind of, he allowed me there. He let me in. Uh, I went on some boat surveys with him, uh, which were fascinating experiences. That time, plus also later, I mean, when I went back, uh, just post the tsunami, also I was there for some time. Uh, so I was on another boat survey with him. I have, a, uh, I, Harry would always remember it. I was, I was, we were in um, Sholbe area and he, he, we were in this survey and he dropped me off somewhere and I had seen a uh, Andaman serpent eagle nest right on top of a mangrove forest and uh, being this thinking I was a great photographer I could get so I decided to scramble up to the top of the tree it was, it was a narrow kind of uh, creek mm -hmm. but on the other side I couldn't get closer because we were on the side. So must not have been very far away, but uh, I could see the nest uh, and I was that kind of canopy level in the, in the forest, in the mangrove. And I was sitting there. I didn't have a great lens. It was just a, you know, 80 mm lens or something. So I was never going to get a good picture anyway. And uh, I was, I was concentrating, trying to see, I can take a photograph. And then somewhere in the distance, I start hearing a whistling sound. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. And then within the blink of an eye, it's just that from the corner of my, I can see this bullet shooting down towards me, which was perhaps uh, the adult. Uh, uh, it was the adult mother or the female or the male. But I was probably intruding and she almost got, uh, it just ducked under the canopy. Otherwise would have taken away a bit, a bit of my sc uh, sc uh, scalp or something. Yeah, so this uh, is a like really scary moment and uh, <laughs> I quickly didn't have any ideas of wanting to photograph and I kind of uh, came down, scrambling down. So uh, the other one that I, I remember and again I kind of wrote about it in the novel is we were at that time, that was another, yeah, uh, Rom was doing a film on the monitor at that point of time 
and uh, i was staying at anet and the, the whole team had come and alphonse i don't know if you is this chennai based uh, cameraman who's now uh, also does cinema in in bombay and in in chennai he was the wildlife cameraman at that point of time and i kind of tagged on with him as an assistant because i was uh, i had some training in film making and all that and that was great because we went to south sentinel which is this little you perhaps know the little island 1.6 square kilometers uninhabited it's a wildlife sanctuary very difficult to land there it could have only been possible because of you know the entire infrastructure and that anet has the boats the the field staff you know the the, the karens and the the ranchi boys it's amazing i was also a boy at that point of time uh and we stayed on that island for about 6 uh, 7 days we slept on the beach uh it has a fantastic population of giant robber crabs i got some great pictures uh it was really fantastic uh it was also a green sea uh, turtle nesting ground and uh, nesting beach and there was this episode when um, we were we spread out these tarpaulins and we were sleeping on those tarpaulins and uh in the middle of the night one got up with a jerk because uh, somebody seemed to be pulling the tarpaulin and actually there was a giant uh, i mean a green sea turtle female who was kind of stuck on that because she's come out to nest so she uh, so i kind of wrote about this in the in the new book that i did for children uh, waiting for turtles i've done this uh, illustrated book on turtle nesting for children so i adopted that story for that mm-hmm. so that was a very lovely experience for instance then so yeah i mean there are so many you would know you you've been out in the field and uh, first time i saw these little hatchlings of the giant leatherback coming out um, seeing the giant leatherback itself seeing the um um the the megapod and the other very fascinating thing was the was the was the geological change post the tsunami and you know the uh, and i've it's it's amazing how much that island changed when the earthquake happened the earthquake that caused the tsunami happened and i i i've been talking about this for a while now this complete ignorance what has happened you have a place where uh, you know great nicobar on the tip has 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 sunk by 15 feet there's a permanent submergence of that landscape by 15 feet on that coastline so when i first went to uh, great nick the lighthouse of indra point was way inland today it is maybe 30 40 feet inside water i mean you can see picture just pick out any picture of where the lighthouse was before the tsunami say 20 30 years ago and where it is today and to be able to see though this was a survey i was on partly with uh, um, with harry actually in the northern part and then later i went on my own to the southern part the change that you, we had this entire coral reef exposed of the coast of interview uh like square kilometers kilometer after kilometer as far as the eye can see a complete coral reef system that is permanently submerged is now permanently exposed so the the scale at which the change had taken place was quite an amazing thing and you know the I, we can discuss the great nicobar project today but anything that's done in the islands if it is not going to account for that reality of the place because earthquakes happen on a regular basis there was an earthquake i think 3 days ago in the islands so uh so you know th- there was also these things of seeing these beautiful animals and these rare creatures and all that but also some of the other realities and of course uh, uh, the, the people of these islands different communities so so there's so much actually to be spoken about and little bit i've written about but 
also so much that i don't know in that sense i'm really glad that you brought up the writing bits and all of the different kinds of content that you've put out there and i guess this is was really commendable is how you're bringing your interests and even your training in communications perhaps has helped you do some of these things and put out different kinds of content and i think that's always so much more valuable than only writing papers or only putting out news articles i think you you know considering the fact that you even taken the opportunity to write a fictional novel based on the realities of the islands and the communities like the jarwa community and that really uh, you know the historical moment of when like you said they came out of the reserve the first time um and clearly that allows you to reach many different audiences and perhaps like you said your early days of letter writing have helped you do this maybe more naturally and it's also really uh, warm and fuzzy for me to hear about letter writing always because i think it's such a beautiful form of communication that we've lost out on and i think especially now it maybe provides us with the opportunity to communicate more deeply given that we have other modes of communication for quick uh, purposeful things but we can really connect over those things and uh, for me i got back to letter writing in the islands actually where while i was there i used to send yeah. long letters to my batchmates so it was very nice to hear that little link um but yeah like like you said i think it's really lovely that you've put out those different forms of writing and you've chronicled uh, your time there in different ways and i really hope someday i told manish this as well that uh, if you ever get a chance to put out the writing from your diaries you know and just personal accounts from your initial early days of travel that would be so incredible to read also just listening to these stories makes me just realize how much has changed because like you said just the sheer diversity of life that you got to see in your first time visiting these islands my experience pales in comparison if i just think about what i was able to see and experience because so much has changed like you said i when i was in great nicobar i was there for 8 months non stop and i spent as many nights as possible on the beach right in the middle of turtle nesting season really hoping to see as much as i could but i still never saw a leatherback you know it was such a rare occurrence even then and while i wasn't a researcher doing it systematically as a not researcher for turtles at the time doing this systematically considering the amount of time i spent there if there were more leatherbacks around i would have first probably seen one but i didn't and i think that's true for a lot of other people who've been there as well and so a lot has changed like you said and nobody is really taking that into consideration which of course brings us to a lot of the conservation concerns there let's sidestep a little bit now and talk about what is what is the life that these islands currently hold you know what is it that we have at the moment and what do we stand to protect or lose so i feel and i'm probably not best equipped because it's not an area of my full understanding or training but uh, i mean what you said is right but on the other hand you know 30 years say of what i have started doing is, is not even a blink in the larger time span so while things have changed i i would i i would think it's not changed so much so the fact that why the leatherbacks were not there or have because it's whether it was related to a certain for example the earthquake related kind of situation in great snake or something more substantial has happened or it's a you know it's it's a momentary thing in that mo- at that in that particular time frame uh so 
of course how should i put it uh, it is not as bad as say in other places I mean, that, that's how i put it because this place continues to be maybe because it is relatively isolated and access is one big issue maybe that's uh, kind of works both ways it can be a positive and a negative but uh, the i think the richness of the place again I, i'm really not the best person because i don't fully understand or study or not trained but i think it is amazingly diverse and rich and continues to be that and uh, and people like you who are studying you know parts of the, the biodiversity and ecology we, there are so many new insights we get on a regular basis you know me on the outside as a lay person reading all this is constantly getting educated and we all know what the potential of that place is in just terms of i don't know what species inventories behavior ecology is not even been fully explored so there is no doubt about the fact that all the challenges and the limitation notwithstanding it continues to be absolutely spectacular uh, and rich and important the problem i think is uh, is that we are not generally acknowledging and understanding that value and it's a case of uh, and again i just go back to this great nicobar project where you know 70000 crores are supposed to be invested in this one island i have spoken about this a lot in the last two years i have written about it uh it just defies all logic even any basic cost benefit analysis kind of if you do it does not add up and uh why are we not able to understand that what is it what 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 we are missing out and not understanding what is at stake is something i just don't understand and so going forward as going to be certainly the challenges and it is important that we study what is there because that is what we can then argue you know this is one project at the moment hopefully there will be better sense prevails and things will stop but th- these are battles that will continue uh, differently in different ways so uh, i think that side of it needs to needs to continue we need to understand that place better to be able to make the argument so the fact that uh, leatherbacks nesting in these islands swim as far as madagascar and australia what the dakshin work and you know isc and all these people have found out uh, if there were more studies of this kind we can and that's such a fascinating uh, piece of information and to, to even use to tell the world that this place is very precious it you can't just destroy those nesting beaches because of economic development even if there is economic development even that may not be kind of assured in this particular project so um you know you you can still have a good chance of seeing many of the species that say, i saw 30 years ago so 30 years is not a long time in my opinion uh but whether this will whether the process of destruction will be accelerated to some of these ideas of what development is 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 i think a very big concern and the scale at which it's happening say in, in great nicobar 120 square 130 square kilometers of pristine forest or at least some part may be uh, you know underused but it's primarily pristine forest in this all low lying coastal forest along the east coast and southeast coast which is not there in other parts of the island the other parts of the island are little relatively higher ground uh, by their own admission 8 and a half lakh trees are to be cut uh, imagine i mean on what face can we talk about uh, climate change and stuff like that so what stands you going to destroy that these are turtle nesting beaches these are megapod habitats this is the home of the shompen um this is a deeply deeply uh, vulnerable and tectonically active zone we have seen emergence here of 15 feet of land 
you put a port and there is another earthquake of that kind what is the birth today will be under water so your entire investment is gone but nothing of this seems to you know count in the whole and uh, in the government ministry committee of uh, um conditions are being kind of late i mean the latest one of just 15 days ago i mean said uh, researchers should study uh, and figure out the nesting holes of the endemic owls in the project area and geotag them and protect is if that possible in 20 square kilometers where you are going to cut you yourself saying you will cut 800000 trees how will you find nesting holes of endemic owls and then geotag them i mean it just seems so ridiculous i mean is it even possible uh, i mean you know you could spend three lifetime looking for owls leave alone nesting holes and then finding out where they nest and then i mean that's my understanding but these are the kind of conditions that are being laid down and they're saying the project is okay if you do this this kind of thing so uh, and then the kind of vulnerability that is being increased ecological geological in a place where there are only 8000 people today they want to bring in many many multiple times of people in the next 30 years so 3 lakh people or 4 lakh people will come into great nicobar or 6 lakh people will come into great nicobar i forget the exact number in 30 years in one island today's total andaman pop- the total population of this andaman and nicobar chain is 5 lakh people and more than those people you want to bring into one island that island will be finished so any one of the most uh, pristine island systems ecologically very rich tectonically very active you know home to both the nicobari and the champen community so and the way they're pushing it is like incredible i mean it's last one and a half year i've been following it it's incredible it's like amazing if they want to do something how they can get it done things are happening even before you can before we can even communicate with each other things are so smoothly being done so i just i just don't understand that actually I, I know I have not answered your question, but uh, we'll be losing a lot of this much faster if some of these things happen, right. and that is something that I think we have to try and stop. Yeah, wow, that's a it's a lot to process really because I think it's also ironic in some ways to see this happening in a land where life is pretty slow moving. Like you said, thirty yep. years, you know, not much may be happening over such a long span. uh when i think about my conversations with the people of great nicobar when i was working there as well you know they told me about how it took 9 years just to rebuild a small 30 kilometers stretch of road after the tsunami how yeah. it's painstaking yeah. work to develop even the tiniest bit of uh you know local infrastructure that would benefit people who live there and yet something of this scale which like you said is impractical on so many levels is seems to be accelerating and moving forward so rapidly uh, it really makes you wonder what the mm. true purpose of everything is and how much people over there are really going to benefit um can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what exactly they are planning to do over there what is uh, what is the construction that they have planned uh, in the island and what are the benefits that they have kind of put forward saying that uh, you know that the benefit that the local so over there will benefit from so this is a uh, kind of niti ayog uh, piloted project they call it holistic development of great nicobar it's a 72000 75000 crore investment expected over the next 
25, 30 years. That's what the project documents say. Uh, there are four components to this project. There is a, at the heart of the project is, uh, is, a, is a port, is a port in, in the Bay of Galatia, where the Galatia enters, the river Galatia enters the sea. There's a beautiful bay there, which, uh, which is also the, probably the most uh, significant nesting site of leatherbacks in the entire islands. I mean, there was very large numbers and then I think there was a setback after the earthquake tsunami, but now also they're saying that numbers are bouncing back in terms of uh, the nesting numbers of the female turtles. Now, right in the bay, they want to build this international transshipment port, uh, which is basically trying to seek uh, then business from shipping companies where they will come and uh, berth here and cargo will be, you know, unloaded and then perhaps shipped to other parts or whatever. So it's a, it's a transshipment port. So, that, so at the centerpiece of this project is that port, which is roughly estimated to cost half the amount of investment, which is 35,000 crores. Then there's an airport, uh, which is partly defense, partly this thing. Uh, there's a power plant system. And then there's a huge area that they're calling a township, like a greenfield township, like over maybe 100 square kilometers. So they want to develop a, and then they're planning a monorail and they're planning, I mean, it's like in a complete back of beyond, they want to do that. So this is the larger uh, plan that they have, uh, which will take about 130 square kilometers of the forest. They want to plan, um, so, so it, it'll be like a greenfield, uh, designer's dream kind of township, which will be serviced by the power plant and this, that, and the other. And the argument in terms of the benefits is that, uh, that there is a lot of potential. So one is there is an argument of something like a strategic thing that this is important to have our presence there. And uh, even if one accepted that, one would wonder why you need a such a huge commercial port to come up in that place. It counts at least from a logical layman's perspective, it sounds a little contradictory to, to me. On the one hand, you say there's strategic defense importance, and then you actually create a huge uh, commercial infrastructure. Uh, but that, that's my limited understanding of that. I, there could be another logic of that. And so the, the basic thing is that uh, the, the infrastructure will create economic activity and it will create development. There is no other uh, logic that is given. And that there are ports, that, that's a very important shipping lane there. A lot of the international shipping passes through there. So it's a great location for strategic reasons and to attract business and other ports in that region and Singapore, Hong Kong are the, are the kind of main competitors and you know, we can get business uh, of the kind that they are getting over there. So beyond that, there isn't much uh, that can actually be, that's actually about the local people there. And it's not very large numbers of people in the island. So if like, and like other people have been saying, like Manish has been also saying and others have been saying that you can easily give the, you don't require a 75,000 crore rupee project to give local people the basic uh, developmental, you know, infrastructure that they need or whatever they want. But it's like, you know, going the other way around. And um, so it is, and the reality also is that, uh, and you would know this, I mean, life is difficult in these islands and particularly in Great Nicobar. So, and people have not got or have, have, have been denied what, most of us have or, or what they think they should get. And I think they start to then look at these kinds of projects as a way to get some of those things. So one can also think and see that maybe they're not unjustified, but uh, you don't require to you know go that way in such a large way, in such a big project to give something far more basic uh, to local people. Of course, there is the promise of some jobs. There's a promise of economic development, of infrastructure. Uh, 
uh, and those are not really concrete in my opinion because uh, when will it happen when will it come so till that doesn't happen don't they get or shouldn't they get what basically they want if they want you know good drinking water or some roads or some infrastructure or electricity that can all be given perhaps even without something so large and uh, then the other thing to keep in mind is that this place will get swamped by outsiders if uh, 300000 people come from the outside over 30 years then uh, is there so much resource in that place will there be so much activity will there be so much employment what will happen to stuff like drinking water where will the water come from what will happen to the waste that is generated so i think if we look a little long term even if some of the benefits that are promised or expected come through what cost it will come at leave alone environmental ecological cost even for people living there if you have 300000 people does the island have the capacity to to have so many people with uh, stuff like water land for agriculture food so is anybody thinking about that and like i say you know 5 lakhs is the total population of the entire andaman and nicobar islands ha uh, which is 8000 square kilometers this island is just 10% of that entire landmass great nick is 900 square kilometers which is roughly 9 you know 11% of the total landmass of these islands mm. now in in 10% of the landmass you want to put as many people as you have in the rest of the line so and there is a reason why there are only 500000 people in the island there are serious restrictions there are serious limitations right we don't have land we don't have uh, you know drinking water uh, these are not easy place so imagine what will happen to is like all of andaman and nicobar ka pura population is going to be located to great nicobar think about it that was going to happen can that place sustain it what will happen to that place so uh, so i don't know what benefits actually will come eventually something will come of course but what cost it will come at and if, i don't even i'm not even sure if there's an economic assessment that's really been done to see whether it will generate that kind of shipping business whether it will you know return on investment will be of the kind that is required i am not so sure about that it's very difficult to properly wrap our mind around the scale of what is being planned because even when we say 70000 crores you know you say these numbers what does it mean yeah i mean i don't is, know what it means how many zeros how many zeros i have no clue yeah and it's also hard i i mean we are not uh our brains cannot process that amount of money what that numerically actually amounts to uh, so it's very difficult to even understand what is being pitched over here but like you said earlier this is also something that's already being fast tracked and it's already happening so how much of this has already been set in place how much of this has already happened and um, what could we do differently or is there anything that we can change at this point you know uh, what could or would you do differently if if you could recommend some changes to what is happening right now so what has happened is that not much has happened on the ground because there's still there's a huge policy and legal process that has to come in place there are lots of clearances there's lots of that process is going on and that's really running at super fast speed so it has come as far as uh, granting environmental clearance which is a very important kind of uh, landmark in this in process so it seems that it's almost there because they have done the the project they did an eia they did a public hearing so they've followed all the steps in the book I, the serious problems if you look at 
and you may have seen the ei report as well i don't know if you saw that ei report a lot of people commented on that and yeah. substantial substantial problems with the ei report but the committee concerned committee has kind of said do this do that and they have not really taken cognizance of the uh, of the serious problems with that report of various kinds so still so in some sense the ground is being laid and it's being laid very very rapidly so the project seems to be negotiating the legal requirements at this point of time uh, environmental clearance there will be perhaps crz related issues there will be i don't know there will be wildlife clearance because all these projects are within a very short distance from the boundaries of national parks although they even modified the esz uh, the the esz the ecological sensitive zone boundary they changed it very explicitly saying that if the boundaries there the project can come up so the the ecological boundary was not changed because of ecological reasons it was uh, taken away because of economic reasons so it's like doesn't make any sense but on the ground nothing substantial has happened from what i know i have not been there in a long long time so from what i hear from friends and people over there but uh, everything else is almost in place or one major dimension of that which is the environmental clearance what's called the environmental clearance is almost there so in the last meeting of the eac which was just in august they have recommended for clearance so that is the that is the main first main process or first main step in the process of that clearance and that particular committee which is called the environmental appraisal committee infrastructure 1 which looks at these projects because these are composite projects they are giving clearance and they have raised some uh, i mean there is some very it's almost like they raise objections because they has to show that they had concern uh, and they are the people who are saying that you know go and find out how many uh, endemic owl nests are there in the trees and geotag them and protect them so uh, it's 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 gotten that far now the way it's going of course they'll also fast track some of the other things so for instance the galathe bay we know was a wildlife sanctuary they got it denotified one day they just said we denotified because and denotify why because a port has to come here it's as explicit or as brazen as that so to get it done is is in a sense not easy but it seems it's easy and and they've done it they've thought it through so that that's happening uh so what we can do i think we have to keep raising our voices hopefully uh i think more people have to write about this more people have to ask questions uh the concerned authorities have to be communicated to we have to raise the fundamental issues of uh what the value of this will be and whether even the economic value even if it is even if we discard all other concerns whether it will really actually give you those economic values what is going to happen to to another to the place if another big earthquake hits uh, have these been considered what will be the loss to life what will be the loss to property what will be the loss to to the economic value of that place uh so hopefully somebody will 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 listen to us and we have no choice i mean there's nothing else that we can do except to constantly ask the questions and i feel a lot more of that can be done and needs to be done i mean it's it's people have done it in the last year year and a half i've been writing a bit others have written a lot of people responded to the ei report that is a very substantive but if i'm thinking there are so many uh, you know loose ends in that whole thing so uh if somebody is constantly engaging with that and somebody picks up i think a researcher who's ecological or economic or anthropological and raises questions of the process legal raises questions of the legal process of the ecological knowledge uh then you build up a larger picture 
and one can hope that there will be a configuration of interest that will understand the concerns at the moment nobody seems concerned but the more we are able to put out these concerns well argued dispassionately then i think uh, i don't see how somebody can not see the logic of what we are saying and uh, what's in our hands is to do that is to is to kind of talk about it ask the questions make it explicit in whatever platform and forum we can and uh, i think it'll all add up somewhere it'll, it it will hopefully uh, come together and somebody will see what we are saying at the moment at the moment it's not happening at the moment uh, nobody is seeing nobody is uh, it's just going ahead so we are not able to stop anything we are not able to make any meaningful uh, you know raise concerns in a meaningful way yeah yeah i think it's uh, it's hard to hear a lot of these things as well uh, considering a lot of people who've gone to the islands that even for a short period of time do develop that uh, deep connect with the place and of course yeah. uh, i'm still in touch with a few people uh, from great nicobar island and i realized that even they don't really know exactly what's coming their way and there is Absolutely. this Absolutely. there's a mixed uh, atmosphere of optimism and concern and yeah. it seems to be what's happening even with us and in some ways i guess you know there is the eternal optimism of people who are a little activisty who want to do something for the greater good where you feel like okay there's well, i'll write one more article i'll do another webinar even this episode is in some ways you know me thinking gosh i need to talk about this and um, but i guess there's also you know it keeps getting balanced out by a feeling of hopelessness at times because you don't know how big your voice is and they are often sure. disparate voices you know from people who are in the mainland so far away from what is happening um so i i i mean i i'm not going to try very hard to bring us back onto a very positive note because i think this is something important that should really sink in with whoever's listening um but maybe one last thing i really want to ask you is what can we do to make this a more concerted organized effort for example is there something that a listener who is playing this podcast right now can do about it is there uh, because researchers and anthropologists and you know those who are involved with policy in some way or the other and know about what's happening are trying to do their bit in some way they are either you know like you said responding to uh, the reports that are coming out and i'll link all of those reports into the show notes of this episode so do check it out if you're listening and want to know more um but uh, yeah what can what can people do maybe those who haven't really done research there or maybe who haven't even really been there but are concerned uh, what can be done so and i've also been thinking about this and this is a question that comes up often so you know if if one looks at a little more generally one can say that as citizens there are three or four interventions that we can make yeah uh, depending on who we are where we are what the issue is so one is of course educating ourselves two is uh, communicating to the media making your voice heard and when i mean when, when i say media i mean a larger so you know if you're on social media for instance then uh, both as individual but perhaps there are collective and there have been some very interesting social media campaigns on this already and it's largely driven by uh, you know the younger crowd the youth as it were and hopefully we can uh, mobilize some of these groups again and uh, maybe talk to them maybe there are others who are listening like you say who might have some other ideas of that kind but there is the the possibility of research and uh, 
and 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 making oneself aware there is the, the possibility of communicating through the media to policy makers uh, to write a letter to a concerned policy maker or to the environment ministers uh, you know stuff like that uh, third is uh, actually more research because if you look at a long term thing the more we understand this that is something and then there is a, a kind of a, a legal intervention so if you look at the whole bouquet of things and maybe i'm missing out something very obvious but and maybe you could pitch in there but these are the three or four things that we have in our hands and actually that's that's true of everybody because we are not in the power if you are in the in the corridors of power then you can take up a different issue or you can you can approach it differently you could say no because you might have to make a decision here we are not in a position to make a decision so maybe we can write to um, the concerned uh, authorities maybe in the environment ministry maybe some members of parliament maybe the local administration whether they listen to us whether they even look at what we are writing i don't know but if you say is this what can we do i guess these are the three or four things that can be done a legal intervention is is too complicated for, and, and perhaps some set of people might do it may not do it but what is then limited is this this communication uh if if a bunch of letters go out to say the committee that is doing this at least they'll get to know that there is a concern they at least get to know that there is public opinion on that side they might still go ahead and do what they want but it is still very different from doing it when they know that somebody is watching kind of thing uh so maybe the environment minister environment secretary the lieutenant governor in the islands uh newspapers maybe maybe somebody can write yeah, maybe you have your own networks where you can inform people you can you know learn yourself and and if there is some campaign that's that kind of comes online somebody who's more engaged puts out something then perhaps just a sign in or a share or you know contribute in the way that contribution is expected uh, i think uh, would be would be the best one can do and maybe that's all that's required as a matter of fact if a lot of people raise these questions then maybe somebody will take notice but also also the problem is that there are so many issues one is looking at where all would you give your voice so that that becomes a bit of a dilemma but uh uh that that seems to me the best that one can actually do i guess it will help i mean it's always good to see some campaign online you know suddenly I, i've seen in the last one and a half year uh, you know there are the interesting groups that are that are raising the questions about greening i don't know them from anywhere i mean mm. uh, they've gotten interested they are making their own effort uh, so that's very encouraging one feels that one is not uh, it is being supported the idea so more of that is always welcome and and let's see if if something more concrete and substantial comes up then some way people listening will get to know and then maybe they'll contribute and maybe you have some ideas good uh, uh, you know it's not like i may have missed out something or you could also add and you know both inform me and our listeners about that yeah no i think there's definitely a lot one can do and maybe what is missing right now is the organized effort and a place where all of these concerns have been voiced on a unanimous yeah. platform you know on a place that is accessible uh in one shot because perhaps right now whatever concerns have been raised in different uh forms different media by different people different groups i think that is the issue they're still very different and isolated incidents and it's hard to see it all come together and maybe if we were to compile it all you know just seeing all of that stacked one on top of each other and seeing how many different people including local voices you know have um, have really said something and voiced concerns in different aspects like you said could be economical it could be ecological they could be 
deep anthropological issues, which there are, of course, um, you know, all of these things which have been voiced, maybe what we need to do is just bring it together in an organized way. And we need, like you said, somebody to who's nifty and, you know, knows how to do these things and collectivize properly to make it happen. Um, I am, of course, hopeful, but I do constantly worry and it is, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, where to go because the question of how much power we have is always there, of course. So, I mean, no, what I also say is that I think we do have an individual, the power is there. It's not like we don't need to, so we're not in positions of power that we make decisions, but I think it, it makes a difference. It will, it will contribute. So that's always welcome if somebody does raise the voice. And, and that and it's also the is the most we can do. And if we can do that, then I think that is that's good enough, actually. That's important. And I hope those listening in, if you're moved enough to raise a voice, please do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was just also just quickly, and maybe like you mentioned, you would I uh, about six months back I did this report on this particular project. So it's a report called a monumental folly, which uh, collects, which is a collection of a kind of the writings that I did over the last year and a half and it gives a good sense and then there's a lot of background information of the project documents, ecological information and stuff like that. So, uh, and it's available online as a report. So, you know, if, if you, I, I, you just mentioned you're going to put that out, that will help so that at least somebody who's interested can look at that. Of course, a lot has happened in the last six months that even that report, which is only six months old, is now a little outdated because it, the, the speed it has moved at but it kind of sets the ground and uh, will give a good set of information on this particular project at least. Right, yeah. right. No, definitely. I'll link that in and uh, really hope that people who are listening and check it out and keep uh, keep themselves informed and educated. Like you said, that's always the number one priority. And I think another, um, something else which has constantly been coming back to me since this whole thing started was that about the local voices, right? About people who are there, who are actually going to see all of this happen and what is it going to be like for them, what their concerns are and as what they're going to be as the project progresses, as concerns emerge, whether they're there right now or whether they will be there a year or two later down the road. And I think um, one of my concerns has always been getting my facts right. And I think that's where the education part of it really comes in because every time you raise a voice and you yeah. take a certain stand you need to make sure you've got your resources from the right places you've got your facts from the right places know what biases there are and I think there's also a lot of privilege that we have being mainlanders being people who just visit and are in and out and are apart from emotionally perhaps our lives are not going to be affected by this but we still are the only ones raising uh, concerns about it so there is that irony as well there's that uh, dissonance and that disconnect that we have from everything that is happening and we're able to voice these concerns with a lot of comfort I think and um, so I think for me that has always been a bit of a moral dilemma just getting my facts right knowing what perspectives to look at and trying to understand a little better what's happening on on ground so um, maybe hopefully as these things move ahead uh, it would be really great to see 
uh, if you're able to empower local groups to talk more about what is happening, more about what they're looking forward to, what they're concerned about, which bits they are interested in and which bits they aren't, uh, in addition to what we are already doing and in addition to looking at the more ecological uh, side of things, even whether it's academically or whether it is, you know, from like you, even like you mentioned, even from a biogeographical standpoint, right? It's uh, it's a vulnerable area. It's a tectonically active area. So there are many different perspectives to look at, and hopefully we can get the right people to make comments about the different aspects yeah. of the problem. What I feel, you no know, one, I think this thing about getting the facts right now that is very very critical, and that's very important, and that, that's a non-negotiable. But I just, you know, this what I do feel is this insider outsider kind of dichotomy and debate that is there all the time and i think it's a, it's a very important one to keep in mind but what i do feel is that one one tends to also at sometimes use it once we don't like the situation but we don't need to be apologetic about being the outsider raising questions because it's very evident and it's been in my experience in work in the islands and you can see that local people are under even if they have a voice that they want to raise they are under certain pressures because of their location that they cannot raise that question. So people will still disagree with you, but being inside is as important as being outside. So it is, it is not necessarily that you only have to be an inside to be able to raise the voice. And that's for strategic reasons, but also for reason that not everybody knows everything. And, uh, so the logic and the argument, it's a very powerful argument and very difficult one to, you know, to fight against that, oh, you're outsiders, you don't care. And that's why, so that, that will always be the narrative. But I think I, I've come to the conclusion very, and I'm very clear about that. that initially, I used to be a little thoughtful about that, you know, is, am I right? You know, am I justified? But I'm seeing that uh, there are some things I know that they don't know. And there are other things that they know that I don't know. So in that sense, we are at par and there are certain things I have an advantage at being outside and I'm not going to be any more uh, reluctant or apologetic about that advantage. Uh, I should be careful not to misuse it and all that, but those are things that we have to always be careful about uh, because sitting outside far away, no local pressures, access to many kinds of resources, there's nothing wrong with it. And if you're wanting to argue your case and you might be the only person who's saying that this is wrong, but if that's what we believe, then we have to do it. And we might be proven wrong and maybe we might be right. Uh, but just because you're alone or you're outsider, I don't feel that we should be not raising our voices. And I'm not saying you're saying that, but I just, it's also yeah. like I'm telling myself mm -hmm. because we do, we do get caught up in that. And I think it's an important dilemma to constantly engage with, but uh, I have, I used to engage with that a lot. I'd be very, very not sure, but not anymore. I've kind of realized that it is important. Actually, it's sometimes better to be outside. It is safer to be outside. It is uh, it is desirable to be outside rather than be there and you know raise your voice. So uh, it's perfectly fine if you're outside. Okay. One need not. People will ask you questions, and you'll have to take the criticism, and you'll have to defend your position. I mean, that's that's more important. Yeah. Yeah. 
no that's a, it's a very healthy way of looking at it i think and you're right as long as we don't misuse it and we're not uh, overpowering local voices and we're complementing them i think you're right there are a lot of advantages to being able to have that birds eye view of what is happening without being directly involved now that you mention it uh, and that does make sense and yeah i hope a lot more people from both the inside and outside come together because it yeah. is um, yeah it's a it's a huge it's also crazy that not more people are talking about it given the scale of what is about to happen so hopefully we can raise the conversation further yep absolutely thanks so much pankaj this has been really great of course we have ended up getting right into the crux of what's happening in great nikobar <laughs> but it was also really really lovely to hear a little bit more about your journey and why the islands mean so much to you it's it's those experiences and those bonds to a place that really drive people as well so it's nice to know where your drive comes from and anyone else who's had similar experiences i'm sure will want to do as much for the place as you are so Thanks thanks so much for opening up and sharing all of this with us today it was really lovely thank you the kind of recounting some of these things and also and to get a platform to again talk a little bit about what's happening now it, it's really very valuable in many ways so thank thank you so much have a great fun We'll be back next week with Shiba Desor where we don an anthropological lens to learn about the Middle Andamans. Stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening.